Hello and welcome to Women of Silicon Valley, the podcast. Today I'm joined by T. Chang. T is an industrial designer passionate about designing products for women. As the co-founder and VP of design at Crave, she is the leading voice in bringing modern sex toys to the mainstream. Her award-winning designs have helped pioneer the category of sex jewelry, destigmatizing pleasure products for women through aesthetic design and leading Crave to outlets such as the MoMA Design Store, Standard Hotel, Goop, and Saint Laurent. T holds an MA in design products from the Royal College of Art in London and a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Design from the Georgia Institute of Technology. T, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, so to kick things off, could you give a bit of background on the path that led you to where you are today? Sure. Um, my background, like I said, uh, like you said, um, I'm a classically trained industrial designer. So my entire career has been designing uh, physical products for people, whether it's hairbrushes or bicycles, furniture. Um, and I worked mainly in the corporate world, designing for big brands. And uh, until I was about 28, I started to look around and I realized that there are so few female industrial designers. I mean, you as a female, you know, engineer, I mean, you know, you know, mm -hmm. that feeling when yeah. you realize you're typically the only woman in, you know, on the team or in the room. Yeah. So um, I kept seeing that repeatedly. And then I started to really look at products for women. I realized that a lot of products that are designed specifically for the female experience suffer because there aren't enough women um, or there are no women at the design table um, giving their perspective. A lot of these products are designed by teams of men uh, for women. And so around 28 um, you know, years old, I kind of had enough <laughs> with uh, some of the corporate world and I decided to focus my time on designing better products for women and in the area of vibrators in the pleasure space mm -hmm. was an area that just was so glaringly obvious that needed design thinking and also women to contribute to make better products. Yes. And in, in a space that where the experience is, is even more personal, that the diversity is something that's going to be, you know, mm -hmm. very much have an impact on what the product is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we think about products like, you know, breast pumps for women. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's actually an amazing researcher named uh, Christina uh, Perez, uh, uh, Christina Perez, um, who wrote a book um, about how women, um, the invisible data of women are often um, not considered when it comes to design of products, systems, and or also medicine, which is incredibly dangerous um, because women were treated almost like an afterthought. You know, it's not, I think, out of malintention, but she has an amazing book on Invisible Women um, that talks about this. But anyway, I'm just saying that, that that carries on into the design of products like breast pumps and, you know, uh, ambient, you know, medicine and like seatbelts and where, you know, in the design of products, they typically considered men's ergonomics and women have just typically not been part of that research. Yes, that's, that's so true. And so what specifically brought you to this area of, of development? There is, of course, the need for diversity there. What, what drew you to that space? 
Yeah, I remember looking for a product for myself. Uh, mm -hmm. I was around 27 or so at the time, and it wasn't my first time at a sex toy shop. And I was living in Boston. And, you know, from my personal experience of just trying to find a product for myself, that was just terrible. I remember mm -hmm. walking into a shop and I was just really, I mean, like, just eyeing all the stuff that's available to me and none of them spoke to me in any way whatsoever all of them looked like some sort of alien phallic object that mm -hmm. really should be either a dog chew toy or you know something else i don't know you know <laughs> but definitely did not feel like an elevated product that i wanted to bring into my bedroom or mm -hmm. wanted you know alone to touch my intimate parts you know so um and i did more research and I just found that predominantly those were the only products available because this category of products have been designed by men since the 60s. So that's what made me realize that, wow, this is, you know, pleasure is a huge part of the human experience. And yet, why can't products for women be as sophisticated as anything else we would have in our lives? So that's what prompted me to really focus my effort on this. Yes, I, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. And there's also the the whole aesthetic element. I mean, there's, there's a reason that you've won awards in, in your work in the area of sex jewelry. What, what led you to the development there? Because that really is taking into consideration the fact that these products that are used for some of the most intimate practices should not you know, have a, a mismatch in terms of appearance with what someone's personal aesthetic preferences are. Yeah, I mean, I for me, um, you know, I, I kind of think of aesthetic almost like uh, like taste, like mm -hmm. like cooking, like cuisines, for example. You know, sometimes you're in the mood for Chinese, sometimes you're in the mood for Ethiopian, sometimes you're in the mood for, you know, good old American diner food. And when it comes to, I think, the aesthetics of products, everyone will have their own personal preference, okay? And as a designer, um, for me, I wanted things that were beautiful, that were elegant, sophisticated, and well-made. And that was unfortunately not what was dominating the landscape. The landscape were filled with products that came from a very male-centric um, point of view. Um, and it was not centered around the clitoris. Um, the forms tend to be this cutesy, you know, you know, it, it's just in a way that did not speak to me personally. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me as a designer, my job is to put something out there that didn't exist before. Um, and so, you know, I'm not knocking people who wanted, want products that look like, you know, phallic toys or dildos or things like that's totally fine. I mean, mm -hmm. those are already out there, but yet as a woman, I was looking for something that also made me feel good in a way that when I look at my product, um, when I go to use it, it, I don't feel embarrassed and I don't have to feel like I have to hide it. And so that is very integral to the way how I approach how I design vibrators um, from the look of it to the experience of it. Oh, the entire experience should be beautiful and you feel good about it and shame and the feeling of like, oh my God, I have to hide my sex toy. Mm -hmm. Just should not be part of it. Yes. And I love that you you bring up the shame element to it because I think that uh, especially as as women, that's something that is so often something we're thinking about and the work that you're doing or the work that is being put out in books that can kind of re-educate people in terms of sex education, like Emily Nagoski's book, mm -hmm. Come As You Are. Yes, I just love it. 
Yes, they're doing such important work in terms of kind of re rewiring people's brains, especially women's brains or anyone in a minority group and, and saying like, maybe that, you know, that education or the, that mindset that you grew up in is not, it's not accurate and is not serving you and you should be able to live any part of your life without shame or self-judgment. Absolutely. I mean, that is about all about being a whole person and the experience of pleasure for a man and a woman mm-hmm. is equally important. But our culture, when it comes to the education of females, we are taught very young, you know, an early age that we should be embarrassed about certain things that we shouldn't touch down there and we shouldn't learn about our bodies and all of that just continues to be inter- you know reaffirmed by our culture. And next thing you know, we become, you know, these, I think less whole beings where we are used, we are serving others with our bodies and we don't think about our pleasure as just as vital and as important as, you know, our partners. And so this is the place, this is the time um, where there are so many great uh, sexologists, feminist artists, document uh, uh, documentary mm-hmm. dr- film directors um, that are calling bullshit on this. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, you know, with the rise of the Me Too movement, and you know, we've just had enough. And so, um, I- I'm just really happy that I'm a designer working during this time alongside all these amazing contemporaries that are all helping to um, help. Uh, women focus on themselves and kind of relearn this knowledge that was never given to us. Yes. And to know that it's not greedy or selfish because I, ironically, another book by Emily Nagoski on burnout talks about this human caregiver syndrome, this feeling that to be worthwhile, you have to constantly give yourself to others and and be in service of others in a number of ways. But Mm -hmm. self-care is not selfish and self-care isn't just a prescribed Mm -hmm. list of things. It's, you know, valuing yourself and taking care of yourself and, and, and paying attention to what your own intuition is saying you need. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm noticed in your path, your intuition really did guide you in a number of powerful ways. And you touch in your, um, Women of Silicon Valley interview on how you've overcome stigma about age and also, of course, the development of these incredible products. So that's not an easy path to follow. We're often told to question our intuition in every area of life. Uh, so how did you find the resilience to do that, to stay the course? Um, I'm going to share a funny story because when I, um, you know, as an immigrant and as um as a uh, immigrant growing, so I was born in Taiwan and I moved to the States when I was six years old and we landed in a place in the state, uh, the small suburb of Georgia um, that was predominantly white Christian town. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason I bring this up is that um, from an early age, I knew what it was like to be an outsider because I did not fit in. You know, I tried, but it just really was not, I didn't, I didn't really identify with that. And, and so from a lot of my, I think my formative years, um, I didn't really have friends. I know this sounds really sad, but I really didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of, fr- I didn't like really didn't have friends. And so, you know, the whole idea of peer pressure and like the idea of, um, you know, people questioning you and things like that. I didn't have that kind of dynamic. I think my parents raised me, you know, to kind of try to filter things 
through myself and they had a very practical point of view because they're both scientists um, and the way they approach sex is not actually very I mean they're not very progressive but I think they're they like we didn't sit down and like talk about sex and they didn't give me condoms they didn't say hey have sex at home versus somewhere else that <laughs> never ever ever happened but the way that they treated sex it was in a way that I would say it's, it, it was like a matter of factly, mm -hmm. you know, it is a part of life and they never treated it like it was a sin or it was nasty. It was bad. They just didn't want me to drop out of school and get pregnant because education is so important to them, mm -hmm. you know, as immigrants. Um, and so that, that I understood. And so, you know, that, so I guess what I'm saying is because I didn't have a lot of external peer pressure and by always kind of, you know, filtering things through myself, I, Kind of developed a sense of kind of right or wrong and so when it came to designing products for pleasure i didn't think about other people's perception because in my heart i knew i just feel like this is this is a universal human right pleasure is a universal human right and that if i'm designing products that support women on this journey that is a good thing and fuck the stigma fuck the culture saying that oh this is so taboo and this is so edgy because you know we have a puritanical society that has you know done a lot of harm more than good i in my opinion um but for me in my world of product design i can i can try to create products that i think move our culture and help people in a way um in their everyday lives and so um yeah for me the intuition is just really just kind of I don't know, just having a sense of right or wrong. And then I think also as, as I've gotten older, you know, I'm 40 now, um, you know, you just, you just kind of give less fucks about what people think. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah. And, and, but it's not so easy to be resilient because, you know, this topic is still so taboo um, mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, like, you know, all of the social media platforms were not allowed to advertise on there, yeah. um, which is really astounding because that is what mark modern advertising and marketing is. But yet we are not allowed to boost, promote, you know, sponsor an ad whatsoever to reach our customer, to mm -hmm. tell them about our products because social media has this playbook that is so archaic that yeah. I don't even know where it comes from. But but so it can be very, very um, deflating morally to like, you know, work so hard, but yet I can't tell, I can't try to reach my customers. I can't advertise. Um, so I try to find wins that help me to stay the course in little things that, I mean, they're big things. Like for example, our brand did a collaboration with Saint Laurent um, yeah. this February, uh, which was amazing. Um, and this month, um, our products is in the Noma design store, <laughs> part of their pop-up for innovation for women, uh, which is such a great curated pop-up from Noma that to recognize, yeah. you know, how far products for women have come. Um, and so these are the things, you know, just recent things that I try to hold on to, to be like, okay, you know, I know I get a lot of no's in my face, you know, about where we can advertise, where we can't, and, you know, constantly things, you know, don't always go your way. But when mm -hmm. we have little wins like this, it really helps me to stay the course. Yeah, of course. And those are huge wins. I mean, the names in that, that list, that sort of recognition really underlines the fact that this is, this is important, that this is the right path. But even without that, I think that just that you have the intuition knowing that this has to be done, that 
is indicator enough that it's it's the right course because it's it's kind of a scary place to be a trailblazer and that's what you are is is a trailblazer in this space and we need people like you destigmatizing this celebrating it so that eventually we do get to a point where the education is more matter of fact and and not tying all of these additional meanings to something that is just it's just a form of pleasure it's just a part Thank of life you. Thank you. And I mean, and even though I put this product out there, but the real work I believe is, is that women are wearing our product. Like for example, we have eight products. The one we're probably best known for is the Vesper vibrator necklace. Mm -hmm. And this is a necklace that's also a vibrator, really strong vibrator. It's beautiful and you can wear it out. And I say that the, the real work is that the women who seizes that identify with this and they wear it out and they take photos, they share it on social media and or they most importantly start conversations. Yes. That is that is something that I think is is the most impactful. Like I'm not I, yes, I put this object out there, but the people who are doing the work and sharing this, they're the ones who's helping to remove that taboo and move the cultural conversation forward because they recognize that pleasure is not something is something that you, you don't have to be ashamed of. And for them to proudly rock our product, especially something like the Vesper, um, it's it's just so powerful. It like creates connection between women. Like for example, I've had so many so many women tell me these stories. Like, um, like a woman told me that you know, she was at a bar and she just went through a divorce and wow. um, she is just starting to date again. And she was wearing a Vesper vibrator necklace and she's at this bar waiting for a date. And there's a female bartender that's behind the counter and sees her sees her necklace and gives her a knowing wink, like. Girl, oh. I see you. And and she was like, you know, I felt so good. It felt so good to have another woman support me, yes. you know, in a way that it's just, it's like, and also when you see another woman wearing this necklace, it's like instant sisterhood. Yes. <laughs> like you just know. And so, so yeah. And I think, so I'm just, I'm particularly proud of just the connection that our, that the product itself has helped to create. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm so glad to hear that it's creating these kind of little celebrations because I think it's so beautiful when there's a moment where we can, as women, recognize each other's power and each mm -hmm. other's, you know, I kind of refer to it sometimes as goddess energy, just mm -hmm. this, it's, it's exciting for there to be that kind of community and the conversations that are coming from it are such an important piece as well. So I'm really mm -hmm. glad that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that you mentioned in your interview um, was that you consider yourself an introvert. And so this is this is certainly a space where, you know, both in terms of your work and then also the field that that could be something that would be more daunting. So what's allowed you to still be incredibly successful in such a public space, despite this more introverted tendency? Um. The, the thing that has helped me the most in terms of channeling my energy um, has was when I was in my early 30s and I I listened to Susan Cain's TED Talk and I read her book, Quiet. Um, she was the first person that I had heard to actually put the idea of introversion out there and how profound um, the how profound and how important it is to cultivate um, introversion and in, in a world, our world that is very much designed for extroverts. 
Yes. And yeah, and listening to her and reading her book just completely helped me change and embrace my introversion. Um, and up until that point, I really didn't know I was an introvert. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I always struggled to fit in and I was constantly feeling, uh, I don't know, depleted um, mm -hmm. after just a couple hours of socializing. Like I, I'm like the first person that want to go home after like yeah. I've done my rounds in 40, 40 minutes. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm you know, yep. and, and I never really knew what that was about. And I just thought, cause I'm just a shitty, like, you know, like networker or whatever it is, but you know, but listening to her really completely changed, um, and how I feel I can operate. So, um, as a co-founder and having to be the face of the company who's talking to media and, and you know, giving interviews, which is, you know, this, um, I've learned that my introversion, um, can really serve me as long as I nurture it. So like when I have to give interviews or I have to be on, so to speak, whether mm -hmm. it's like a video or a call, um, I make sure that I give myself, I do not socially deplete myself the day before. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, I also make sure that um, I'm more sensitive to how I distribute my energy um, pre prior to my, my, in my twenties, I didn't really think about that at all. And so I would, you know, just agree to whatever party that was coming. I would like meet up with somebody. I would like make a, you know, uh, set up a call here and then did not realize that if I don't strategically place where I was having my conversations, where I was spending my time, where I was socializing, I cannot be more, if I cannot be efficient and be the best that I can be for my company. So mm -hmm. I've just had to, yeah figure out um, how to um, balance my social quota and my quiet quota. <laughs> yes, and I think there are kind of two main pieces to that that I, I see. And, and on the mm -hmm. one hand, we're so taught that extroversion is the norm, that that's mm -hmm. what is expected. And so I also read that book, Quiet. It was recommended by a colleague and mm -hmm. really I loved it and seeing that introversion yeah. isn't the other. It's you know, uh, I think between one third and one half of people are more yeah. introverted and it's just, absolutely, it's just how they are. It's just their yeah. personality quality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And during the, the shutdown, there have been so many jokes about zoom fatigue or video call fatigue. Yeah. And, um, I've had to realize too, that just because a call only took a half hour or something, that doesn't mean that it's only about the time. There's also the emotional investment and mm -hmm. that's that's a depletion of of energy that might not be proportional to the length of the call, depending on how mm -hmm. you know involved that conversation is. Absolutely. And, and can I tell you a secret? Okay. <laughs> yes. I know COVID is a very difficult time, mm -hmm. but since I am such an introvert, <laughs> I have been thriving at home. <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I mean, am I alone in this? I just feel like I, I don't know. I just I, I look. I, it's like luckily, you know, my company's doing well. You know, the demand for our products is so good. But like personally, I feel like I'm thriving because I am not being worn down by the commute I have to make every morning oh, through yes. Bart's, you know, schlepping, you know, 45 minutes there and then back losing that time. And then, you know, going through the city and like all those things can just drain you, especially yes. when you're an introvert. Um, and so the fact that I can be at home in my pajamas, I'm actually wearing pants actually, <laughs> you know, and, and, and 
these, it, it has really helped me to be more focused on my work. And I feel like some of my best work is coming out during this time. Oh, so phenomenal. Yeah. So it's, it's the removal of all of those micro stressors because yeah. it's, yeah. there are just so many little things that can stress you before you actually get to the part of your day that is meaningful when you're having to deal with a commute and all that is associated with that. So I'm, I'm so glad that's been your finding during this time. Yeah, yeah, I feel like maybe other introverts are like, I don't know if I can say this, but I'm doing just fine being at home. It's well, like, it's our time. We need, we need more good news. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. That's phenomenal. And I won't ask about like, I'm sure any specific products are very much under wraps, but what's your design process like? Are there, are there iterations like with the Vesper, was there a lot of fine tuning before deciding the exact appearance and styling? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, the our process of design and manufacturing it is I would say it's definitely on the level of of modern you know consumer tech companies in that you know there is an ideation phase, there's a research phase, there's a prototyping phase that we do all in house. Uh, we actually have a micro factory in downtown San Francisco where we do all of our prototypes. Um, this is an area that is very very unique and particularly. Um, adult toys because traditionally a lot of the companies in the space they just literally sketch something on a napkin and or they just go to china or mm -hmm. they respond to those you know um inbound emails from chinese factories and and they just kind of white label it and make put their own name on it mm -hmm. um and there isn't that rigor of design and development that we have and so for us that all of that is very close to home and i'm involved in every step of the way and we have a team of predominantly women women engineers women you know research and, you know to all help to guide us to make sure that we are putting out the best product possible so every product that we before it becomes an actual product has already been product tested and gone through numerous numerous iterations so that we have a sense of what people love about it you know what are the features of it so that we can position it as such and so that there's not a big disconnect between like, oh shit, I didn't realize so many people hated this. You know, you're always mm -hmm. gonna get surprises. You never really know, but we try to do the best that we can in in um, testing for all of that. Yeah, I, I think that also that further helps destigmatize these products that the development process is just like for any other tech product, because that's, yeah. if, if it's looked at in a matter of fact way, that's what it is. Granted one that's incredibly aesthetically pleasing and, and can create community and important conversations. But like any other tech product, it's it's simply a tech product. And so yeah. I hope mm -hmm. I hope eventually social media changes their rules and allows for advertising there. I know it's it's really, really crazy. And um, you know, if people came into our uh micro factory in downtown San Francisco next time, you know, maybe mm -hmm. once this is lifted, you and Leia, you guys are very welcome to stop by Crave. Um, you will see like, you know, downstairs we have our workshop with CNC mills, with machinery, we have this is a full out, you know, sophisticated workshop upstairs is our studio and people, if you go in there, you would not know if we make sex toys or design printers. You know what I mean? It's a, yeah. we just look like a design studio and a workshop. And so th that's kind of, you know, I think that that is really at the heart of what we do is that we are product people. We want to make the product for the best experiences. And so we invest a lot in um, the facility and the talent and the time to really mm -hmm. make sure that um, 
you know, people love our products versus just like putting a label on something, which is really disingenuous. Yeah. I mean, that would be amazing to see that in person. So once things are back to normal, I'll take you up on that offer for sure. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> is there, is there part of the development that you feel really looks different than the development of another tech product, whether that's in, in the prototyping phase or in, in sketching out ideas? Is there anything that you feel is really unique and different? Yeah, I think in the sex toy spaces, it's definitely the user research phase mm -hmm. because we can't exactly watch someone masturbate. I mean, I guess we could, but that would be really not right. That's not at all. This very you know invasive. Mm -hmm. um, so what's unique in that, like you know, if I was designing a washer and dryer, I can go into a customer's yes. home, them load the dryer, washer, you know, how this person you know throughout their day and things like that. Whereas in this particular experience, we. We can't do that. So it's designing for an experience that we can't actually observe. And so we have to rely on, you know, really good questions and we have to make sure that they're comfortable with the product um, and that we really give, um, um, uh, you know, really good prototypes and um, just make sure that we actually test for what we're trying to test for. So we just have to be more thoughtful in that respect, but still like, it's still getting feedback. Um, so yeah, in that way, that's still very similar. It's just that we can't actually observe them. Of course. And I, I would also think that it's a real testament to you and your company that you create an environment where the people who are testing these products feel comfortable talking about such a uh, personal experience and describing what was working and what wasn't working to you because there aren't many to you and your team because there aren't many situations where that's something that's going to be publicly and openly discussed. Yeah. I mean, we have a, um, we're really fortunate. Like, you know, we've been in business for almost, it's coming up on 10 years actually. Wow, um, and we thank you, thank you. And, and we've amassed, um, um, a group of uh, product testers that just love our brand, love our company. And whenever we have new products, you know, we reach out to them and um, if they're interested in the type of product we're testing, then they, you know, it's, they, they tell us and then, you know, they, it kind of self-selects because if someone who is not comfortable talking about pleasure or sex or how they masturbate, then they would not be on this list, you know, they because all of these are volunteers. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's surprising is that most people are actually quite comfortable, you know, uh, more than what we thought, you know, we thought we would have trouble getting product testers, but actually we have a wait, wait list of testers. Um, so, so yeah, and I think that that's just to show that, you know, our culture, we are so ready for a better conversation. Yes. Yep. And in terms of, of those conversations, when you're in need of advice or during during your journey to where you are now, who do you tend to reach out to? Who do you consider your your road warriors or the people you go to for advice? Oh, I have I have what I call my oracle. Um, I have this these three ladies that I've known since college, and they are my group texts text oracle ladies that um whenever i have any kind of like real major life emergency um and i really need an opinion or i just need to know like what color hair dye i should do this time you know like it's mm -hmm. just they are always there no matter what time 2 a.m you know they're on we're on different coasts you know um so those are the people i reach out to but i also have people that um so those because many of them are also in design and so we have a lot of overlap but i also have people that i've met through my time 
volunteering with mm -hmm. IDSA, which is Industrial Designer Society of America, that I've been part of for many years. Um, it's a great organization, um, and I've always I've also found that just meeting people through volunteering work um, is also a great way to build your network because you both have a sincere place that you guys met and. And that has also expanded my network to people that I normally would not have met. And um, I can go to them for, you know, various advice that I, you know, yeah, at any time. So, yeah. That's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. I'm going to pivot us a little bit over to the rapid fire Q&A section, which you don't okay. have to answer super quickly, but they're a little bit lighter questions. So, for starters, what app do you use the most? Instagram. I know I wish I had a more exciting answer, but yeah, Instagram. It's, I mean, it's a classic one. Do you have, I, I'm always looking for good recommendations on like powerful women to follow or really good accounts to follow. So do you have um, any favorite accounts that you really enjoy the post from? Uh, yeah, um, let me see. Off the top of my head, I love Design Milk. Um, design yes. is a great yeah. one um, because they cover like just so much um, many areas of design they do a lot of cool features um, there are so I'm trying to think what else design milks one I've been looking at a lot um, you know and they're all and for me it's also a way to keep up with my good friends so yeah. um, seeing their major life milestones and there are some of my friends who's actually gotten engaged um, and married um, oh, during wow. COVID wow. yeah um, so um, so yeah yeah, shout out to Design Milk. And also follow Love Crave, actually, lovecrave.com. I'm sorry, uh, at Love Crave, because I really love um, my brand's um, Instagram, where it's not about like pushing products on people, but it's really about just daily affirmations of self-empowerment, yes. self self-pleasure, and, you know, fuck the patriarchy. Um, but in a way that is not so, like, you know, so over, but, like, it, we do it in a sassy, fun way. So, um, so, yeah, I would encourage, you know, checking out Love Crave. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Um, so in addition to those affirmations, what's something that you do to feel more upbeat and inspired? Ah, so I tend to like, at, right before I go to bed, I know it's really not good to, you know, be on your computer screen, you know, you're on your phone before you go to bed. But I take that time as my brain is like winding down, I actively search for female designers or female mm -hmm entrepreneurs um, right before I go to bed because it's, it just helps me to feel more optimistic and yeah. inspires me to be even better. And so I like to find these accounts and just kind of discover them and go down these various rat holes um, and then find a really great post that or a work that they've done and then repost and share it on my feed because it also shares with my audience because I, I just think in you know supporting other women as well so um so I love doing that yes there's this really great book um that was compiled by Grace Bonney it's called in the company of women and it's this collection of a hundred female artists and entrepreneurs um with their inspiration and advice and that's just that's another kind of hard copy, you know, coffee table book for Oh, um, what is it called again? Can you say that again? It's, it's or, called In the Company of Women. Okay, okay, I don't have to check that out. Cool. Yeah, it's it's really it's gorgeously put together and um I would love at some point to see something like that um for for women in tech because this is mm. it's an incredible compilation of female artists. Um so that's another good source. But yes, 
I I just love those any anything like book or magazine or social media account that really focuses on women just being incredible in whatever space it is. There's a magazine I found at a local bookstore called Four Women Who Roar. And Ooh. it highlights um, female photographers and just shows really gorgeous, um, essentially diversity positivity, not just oh, awesome. body diversity, but um, really it shares poetry and stories of different female love. experiences. It's it's great. So I, I love that there are these, these books and magazines and accounts in this space. And to, to close us out, living in such a tech-focused space, what is your favorite analog activity? Reading, reading with mm -hmm. a good old book. Um, mm -hmm. During this time, I've actually discovered this series called um, The School of Life by yeah. Alain de Botton. Um, mm -hmm. He is a Swiss uh, philosopher, uh, Swiss, I think Swiss English philosopher, uh, that created a series of books that offers practical philosophy that's like basically gathered from revered thinkers from like, you know, Aristotle, Socrates, and he turned it in a way that it's very relevant for everyday problems. So it's kind of like this philosophy meets psychology. And it has that typical British humor, which I really love. Um, so I, I just, I've been really into that book, uh, that, that series it's called The School of Life. It's a series and they have like mm -hmm. things on sex, they have things on work, they have things on parenting. So it's, it's oh, a really nice. cool, um, cool series. Um, so I love that. Yeah. That's really great. Well, T, thank you so much for, for making time and coming on the podcast. Thank uh, you. I really appreciate this. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun.